You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. And turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We are in the last week of a series here in 2 Peter 1 called Make Every Effort. Make Every Effort. We've looked at adding to our faith. Supplement your faith, he says, with virtue. We looked at week one. Growing in knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. Last week we looked at godliness. This morning we finished this series with the greatest of Christian virtues, love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's look at God's Word together this morning, 2 Peter 1. I'll start reading in verse 3 and read down through verse 11. This is God's Word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray now you'd help us. We want to supplement our faith with all of these virtues. And uh, Father, you... We know that that's something we need to strive and work toward, and and we also know it's not something we can do on our own. We don't have the power to change our own hearts. That's a work that you're doing by your Spirit through your Word. And so, Father, this morning, I'd ask you to help me as I speak, that you'd give me clarity and wisdom and help the words I say to be true and helpful. And I pray you'd help each of us as we listen that we would hear these words as they really are your words and that we would receive them as true and embrace them as good and act on them in obedience and faith. So I pray you'd use your word now in the life of your people for the glory of your Son. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're thinking about supplement your faith with love. Supplement your faith or add to your faith love. Well, there's good news and bad news for preaching on this this morning, it seems to me. 
The good news is I don't need to convince you that love, growing in love, is a good thing. I don't think I need to convince you. No one's here saying, oh man, that's, if I've had too much of one thing, that's love. Love is one of our world's most treasured virtues, even if we don't always live up to its ideals, and we often don't. And yet we know that love is one of our greatest virtues. I mean, think about how the Bible describes love, genuine love. Think of that well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 13, a passage we so often read at weddings but really is written to the church. But listen to what it says. It sounds almost too good to be true. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Imagine living and breathing in that relational atmosphere. Never envies, never boasts, never arrogant, never rude. I think I've I've been guilty of all those things in the last week. Imagine living in that kind of relational atmosphere. It's what our lives need. It's what our homes need. It's what our marriages need. It's what our workplaces need need, it's what our churches need, our neighborhoods, our politics, our world. We need that kind of love. I, I don't need to convince you, I don't think this morning, that love is good. We long for love. Our souls veritably ache for it. And, and we, at our best, we want to be people who generously Love. I don't need to convince you growing in love is a good thing. Our lives and our world desperately need it. But there's bad news too. That kind of love is not cheap and it's not easy. It's not natural. It's not the default. Before sin entered the world, things were different. There was none of those negative things, right? The, Adam and Eve were created in the image of a loving God. It was normal and natural. It was the default setting for them to love. But with their disobedience, sin enters in the world, and the default is no longer to love. Now, we're still in the image of God, however martyred to face that may be. So we don't love perfectly. But the default is no longer love. The default is now self. It's like if you imagine love as, as rolling a big rock, and before the fall, it was all downhill. All of nature was working with you. It was easy to move because it was downhill. But after sin, it's uphill. And we still know we need to move it, but it's hard, and we often get tired of it and don't feel like it and look for something easier and something else. Love is a treasure we seek, 
We really do. And it's a struggle we can't master on our own. So how do we do what Peter says here in 2 Peter 1.7? Supplement our faith with love. Well, I want to give you this morning four related truths this morning to help us think about how to do this. And I want to, I want to do that from the passage we looked at earlier in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. So turn back there if you would. Four things, four truths that will help us see how to move forward to supplement our faith with love. But I want to be clear up front. This, this isn't an optional exercise for us. Not really. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not a, hey, if you feel like there's a love deficiency in your life, maybe try this. Remember what Jesus says in John 13 and then again all over in 1 John. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. A new commandment. Love one another. Here's the first thing. God is love. God is love. Look at 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's central to his identity. It's central to his very name. You remember that story in Exodus 34 where Moses is on the mountain and he, he longs to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory, and God agrees to do it. And when he does it, what does God do? He, he declares his name before Moses. He's going to show Moses' glory by declaring his name, his identity. And he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God's very identity, his very name, is gracious, compassionate, steadfast love. That is, that is outrageously good news. That's outrageously good news. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not some kind of inevitability. Think about the false gods worshipped by so many nations. They're not like that. The Greek gods were fickle and self-serving. The Buddhist and Hindu gods are impersonal and largely disinterested in mankind. The Aztec gods, like the Canaanite gods in Israel's day, are bloodthirsty and violent. The Canaanites around Israel had a god named Molech through whom they, they rolled their babies down their outstretched arms into the fire to appease their wrath. The Aztecs sacrificed, human sacrificed, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. One of the early stories said in a four-day festival, something like 80,000 victims, most of them prisoners of war, to appease a wrathful and angry god for a little while only to need to do it again later. It's not some kind of inevitability that God would be love, but he is. He is love. And he's always been this way. It's not a mood he's currently in. It's not 
something he slips in and out of, depending on his circumstances. It's not something he's working on, trying to be better at. God has always been love. For all of eternity, God has loved. Because for all of eternity, before there ever was an earth, before there was ever a single human being, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit lived in fellowship with one another. God has always been loving. Forever. That's one of the reasons why, as as has been noted by a number of people, that that a Trinitarian God, the God of the Bible, is better than a a Unitarian God, like Allah of of Islam. Allah may or may not be loving, but it can't be essential to who he is, but because before he allegedly created the world, there was nobody for him to love. He was all alone. But the God of the Bible for all of eternity has been loving. It is who he is. And remarkably, in John 17, we won't take time to turn there this morning, Jesus is praying for his disciples right before his crucifixion. And what does he do? He reminds God of the love that they've had for each other for all of creation. And then he prays, God, I want you to bring these disciples into that love. This love that we have, let's bring them into, that they might share it with us. This love that God has enjoyed for all of eternity, he wants to share. He wants to share. He's not stingy with his love. He's not exclusive with his love. He loves to love and to bring people into his love. We, we, could, we could fairly say that God has created the world and created humanity so that the love the Father and the Son have shared for all eternity could overflow to the people he's created because he loves to share his love. Jonathan Edwards, that great colonial American theologian and philosopher, one of America's greatest minds, he reasons from this same verse, 1 John 4, 8, that since God is an infinite being, he must be an infinite fountain of love. Never runs out never needs to be replenished, just flows and flows and flows forever. He says it this way in a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. Edward says, there in heaven, there is in heaven this fountain of love. This eternal three in one, the Godhead, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested. He shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. God is love. Secondly, God's love shines brightest in the gospel. God's love shines brightest in the gospel. The next verse, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved God us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
God's love shines brightest in the gospel. A holy God and His perfect beloved Son He sends into the world for miserable sinners like me and you. We have sinned. We have no claim, no deserve, no desert to be part of God's family, to receive anything but he, from Him but wrath. And yet, He sends His own Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to appease His just and right wrath. He pours it out on His Son instead. Listen, I wouldn't do that for you. I wouldn't give my Son for you. I'm sorry, I don't love you that much. But God has given His Son for us. He loves us that much. John 15, greater love is no one than this, Jesus says, than someone laid down His life for His friends. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love shines most brightly in the gospel. You remember that well-known passage, uh, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, he's been talking about the gospel all through the first part of Romans. And then he says, talking about God, what God is doing to bring people to himself, he says in Romans 8, 31, what should we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, look, he's already given us his son. What, what do we think he's going to hold back? He's given us the most precious thing he has. And then he goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love shines most brightly in the gospel. It is our assurance that God loves us. You see, I need, I need proof. I need tangible evidence that God loves us. And the gospel holds up a crucified son and says, here's all the proof you need. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also freely give us all things. God's love shines brightest in the gospel. Here's the third thing. God's love for his people compels them to love each other. God's love for his people compels them to love each other. Back here in 1 John 4, the next verse, verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You know, we might think, 
that the argument would go like this. God loves you, so you should love him. And so we should. We love him, he says later, because he first loved us. But that's not the argument the New Testament most frequently makes. The argument it most frequently makes is, he loved you, so you should love each other. He loved you, so you must love each other. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 for a minute. Ephesians 3, again, ends with a prayer, kind of like Romans 8, ends with a prayer in which Paul is going to glory in the love of God. Well, I want to see what that leads to. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul's exalting in God's great love for us in Christ. Then chapter 4, just a couple verses later. Therefore, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he's been, I spent three chapters talking about the gospel exalting in God's love for us. And so you need to walk in a manner worthy of that. What does that look like? With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Here's the work the gospel is supposed to do in you. It's supposed to make you love each other. And he goes on throughout this chapter to talk. He, he won't use the word love a ton of times, but it's all pointing to that, how they must work together and get along. I mean, look ahead at verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with that which is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. That's the work the gospel is supposed to be doing in us, making us love one another. Let's skip ahead to verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all sins, all vices that relate to not loving or caring for others. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How do we relate to each other? We love the way Christ has loved us. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. God's love for his people compels us to love each other. What does that look like? Well, if we go all the way back to 2 Peter 1 where we started, we see that we're to supplement our faith with love. But right before that, another love term we didn't focus on yet. It says, supplement your faith with brotherly affection. That's another love word. Uh, the Greek word is Philadelphia. You've heard that word. It's also a place name, of course, in the ancient world and, of course, in uh, modern America today. Brotherly affection. What does the love between God's people look like? The best way to describe it is that we love like 
family. Like family. Family was an enormously important value in the ancient world. Really, most of the world and most of all of human history, family was supremely important. In the Greco-Roman world that the New Testament was written in, uh, your most important social connection was your family. Your immediate family, your extended family, your kin, that was your most important social group. And, and within that group, the most important relationship was not usually husband and wife. It was siblings, brothers and sisters. So it was a remarkable thing to those outside the church that in the early church, the believers would refer to each other as brother and sister. It was a new family. It was a new family. The church becomes the primary family of the follower of Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus uh, they come to him, he's teaching in a house, and they say, hey, your, your mother and sister and brothers are outside. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and sister and brothers? And he turns and he looks at his disciples and those that are following him and says, those who do the will of God, they, they are my mother and sister and brothers. This is my family. Jesus' point isn't to say that your biological family is irrelevant, stupid, you can forget about that. That's not what he means. He's just saying the first family it's God's family. That's my first family. We watched uh, the kids recently read, Kelly and the kids were reading in their school a uh, biography of William Carey. You've probably heard of William Carey. He was kind of often called the father of the modern missionary movement, uh, left England in the 1790s and went to India. And uh, so they, it was actually the weekend that our whole family had been sick and we were kind of recovering, but we're feeling a little better. And so they, they, they all got kind of obsessed with William Carey. Like they read a book that was supposed to take them two weeks. They read it in a couple days and they're on YouTube looking for movies and this kind of thing about William Carey. And so we read through a William Carey book and watched a William Carey movie all in the space of a couple days. And uh, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, he goes to India and um, when they go to India, the, the, it takes a long time, but the first convert and no doubt many after that, and no doubt like many places in the world today, faced enormous pressure. You know, trust in Christ is wonderful, but the next thing you need to do is be baptized. And that's going public. I'm following Jesus now. And they show in the movie this just massive opposition, gangs of family members and friends to come and threaten him and come and beat him because you can't, you know, you've betrayed our family, you've betrayed our people, all our values. But his assertion was, I've got a new family. We've got a new family. See, it's, it's not that the church becomes like a new family. It's not, well, maybe we could think of it as. It's really a family. It's really a family. God is our Father, which makes us brothers and sisters, which makes Christ our elder brother. It's really a family. God is 
our Father. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song from this passage taken from the, the King James text. Maybe you sang it too. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Anybody else sing that song? Maybe it was just us. Maybe that was a Manuel Saginaw original. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think it was. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons of God. It's really a family. It will last forever. Here's the fourth thing. God's people testify to Jesus by their love for each other. The love that God's people share is not only delightful for us, and it not only honors God, it commends God to those who aren't yet part of the family. Back in 1 John 4, the next verse, verse 12, says, No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's displayed, it's complete, it's shown. So he starts the verse by saying, no one's seen God. Well, what's God like? We don't know, we can't see him. But when God's people love each other earnestly, wholeheartedly, not just in word and tongue, but in deed and truth, it says something to people who don't know God about what God is like. Jesus makes the same argument in John 17. He's praying and he says that they, his disciples, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you've sent me. He says, look, their unity, their love, will show, will some, in some way vindicate before people that God has sent Jesus Christ. The church's love for each other was a powerful testimony in the ancient world. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. It was Ridiculous to people and remarkably attractive, the way they loved and cared for each other in this new family. So as we finish this morning, just a couple things quickly. How do we make every effort to grow in love? I don't think there's anybody here saying, Psh, that's not for me. No one here saying, I don't want more. I've got way too much love in my life. No one's saying that. And yet it's not a switch we just turn on and off. Yeah. How do we grow in it? How do we really add love to our faith and grow in it? Well, three thoughts. First of all, since God is love, we need to go deep in our knowledge of God to grow in love. We need to go deep in our knowledge of God to grow in love. He is the definition of love. He is the perfect epitome of love. And so we need to grow in him, our knowledge of him, which comes through his word, if we're to grow in love. We won't grow in love by starting with, I'm just going to act more loving. But it starts by going deep in knowledge of God. Secondly, since the gospel is where God's love shines brightest, we need to press hard into the gospel for at least a couple reasons. Here's the first. We, we need to recognize how loved we've been. We need to see that example, that display of love over and over again. 
And so we need to press into it. We need to understand it in all its many facets and all its many details. We need to press into, remind ourselves of, rehearse, delight in the gospel, how God has sacrificially loved us. It's, it shows us how loved we are and how to love others. But at the same time, it does another thing, I think. It frees us up from the need to go looking for love rather than looking to give love. All too often, we feel this kind of deficiency, like, I need somebody to love me. And it makes our relationships self-focused. You didn't pick this. None of us picked it. It's just how we are in a sinful world. And we, we, we clamor to get love and get affirmation and get approval and get esteem from people. But, but the gospel tells us that the God who created the world and who moment by moment holds it all together, who grants you your next breath and the next beating of your heart, the God who is superintending all the progress of human history toward his determined end, that God has loved you in astounding ways. That love, if you'll see it and embrace it and go deep with it, will satisfy you. No love, no human love from another person can do that. There is no person in the world that can satisfy your need for love. Only God can do that. And so the gospel frees us up to say, I am already extraordinarily loved by the one that matters most which should free us up to give love rather than grasp for it. Here's the third thing. Since the church is a family, we must press into relationships with each other. This used to be easier. It used to be more normal. It used to be more natural. You know, the early church... Um, we had to read a book in seminary called Reading Romans in Pompeii. And it was a book about, you remember, Pompeii was the city you know, buried in an instant by uh, Mount Vesuvius, right? And, uh, and so uh, the, in this book, the author is looking, Vesuvius uh, Pompeii is not real far from Rome, and it was, uh, I think, 79 AD, so roughly the period of the late New Testament. And so the book seeks to look at archaeology in, in Pompeii, just kind of the situation, uh, everything from how the city is laid out, how houses are laid out, social arrangement, and then apply it to what Paul is teaching in Romans. It's a fascinating book. One of the things he points out is that in Pompeii, and, and we would assume therefore Roman, in Rome, everyone lives, it's a big city, multi-story apartment buildings. Um, the apartments are small. You don't spend your day you know, you know, with the air conditioning turned up to avoid the hot Italian sun. No, it's everyone's outside. Everyone's in the street. Everyone's close together. And so people just lived in close proximity. Nobody's commuting from 15 miles away to go to church. We all live right here. We walk everywhere. We can walk to everybody's house. We're all in it. We just live in very different social dynamics today. We have to push and press into those kind of relationships. They're not obvious. We don't, I can go all week and not run into any of you in Kroger or somewhere. If you come into McDonald's, I'll see you. But uh, Kroger, I could miss you, right? We, just, we were just all spread out, and that's just the way the world is today. And so we have to work harder 
we have to press into these kind of relationships. And um, we, um, I could talk about this for a long time. Uh, the, we have to work at it. And we are um, maybe tempted to prioritize other things, to get narrowly focused on our, our own family to the exclusion of others. Um, it's something that we have to really work at. But I, don't, I think it's something that if we press into, we find ourselves grateful and enriched. Talked to my youngest brother last night. His name is Michael. He lives up in Saginaw where we grew up. And uh, I just hadn't talked to him in a while. And uh, we talked for probably an hour last night. And uh, he was working on something. I was working on something. And we were just kind of talking as we worked. And uh, I got done and I hung up the phone. And I said to Kelly, it was just nice to talk to him. Right? I just feel like I don't see him much. And I don't talk to him much. And I hadn't been thinking all day, man, I miss my brother. But once I spent some time with him, I'm like, I miss my brother. I need to, we just need to see him more. We need to talk to him more. And I think that the same thing is true in the church, that we have to press into intentionally into these kind of relationships, and they cultivate uh, both a desire uh, and a, a delight in growing relationships. That's, that's really the big purpose of our together groups that meet on Sunday nights uh, and on Tuesday nights uh, at Slagle's house. We want to grow in those kind of relationships and, uh, and put ourselves in those kind of places. We need to be reminded of how important it is. We need to press into those relationships. We'll default to going it alone, or we'll default to connecting only with the people most like us. Then if we press more and more into our church family, I think we'll find ourselves blessed and encouraged by more and more people. And they'll be blessed and encouraged by us. And before we know it, we'll find ourselves supplementing our faith with love. Father, I pray that you'd help us. We, we are recipients of extraordinary love in the gospel. We were your enemies. And you've adopted us and seated us at your table. You every reason to punish us. And instead, you've graciously forgiven us. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Help Springview Community Church to be a church, a, a people, committed to supplementing our faith with love, that we would press into your word and we'd press into the gospel to know it better and to delight in it more and to rest in it more deeply. And I pray also we would we would press into to growing relationships and friendships within your church that we might love each other as we have been loved by you. That you would use that to encourage us and grow us and move us forward for your glory. I want to thank you for the privilege it is to be part of this church. You have been very kind, very gracious to us. We owe everything to you. So thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.